The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. We're looking at 1 John chapter 3 and verses 4 through 6. And in a passage before us, John teaches his readers concerning the problem of sin. He knew that uh, there were individuals within the first century congregation who were embracing some of the most wicked types of sinful behavior, 1 John 2, 16. And at the same time, some were even denying that there was such a thing as sin, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. Sin had become this thing within the church that people didn't want to talk about. It was a sort of three-letter word. This morning, I want to preach on the subject, the three-letter word. Sin is a topic that indeed is difficult to talk about. The more things change, the more they seem to stay the same. There are many professing believers today who pledge to not talk about this topic. The word sin has become a sort of three-letter word, one we're not supposed to mention. Shouldn't it come out of our mouth? But I want us to see from Scripture and from God's Word that silence on this matter is a grave error. Without an understanding of this doctrine, this teaching from the Bible, one doesn't really have an understanding of what's gone wrong with the world. One has no explanation for the mess we're in. In addition, if one doesn't talk about sin, if the church is silent on this subject, Uh, People in a lost and dying world will never see their need for Christ. Don't we know this church? It's the knowledge of sin that humbles us and makes us aware of our need for a Savior. It's a word, unfortunately, that we don't like to talk about, but the very word shows us what's gone wrong with the world. It makes sense of all the things we're facing in society, and it is the very thing that will drive us to our knees and see our need for a crucified Christ. It's a word, unfortunately, we don't like to talk about. I remember growing up, there were words I was not allowed to say in my house. And I remember there was a a punishment. Maybe punishment's the wrong word, maybe corrective measure. Negative reinforcement, that would be the right description. There was a negative reinforcement if uh, my sister, my brother, or I used a word we weren't supposed to use. And maybe you've seen a Christmas, the Christmas story before with Ralphie when he had to eat the soap. I had to do the same thing on one or two occasions in my childhood. I know you can't believe that a preacher had to have his mouth washed out with soap on one occasion. But I can tell you, I distinctly know what dial soap tastes like. So we don't use it to this day. We use dove, all right? So um, there were words we weren't allowed to to utter or speak. And this word sin, unfortunately, has become a word uh, that many don't like to talk about even in mainstream Christianity. But I believe when we really humbly come before the word of God without bias and, and read it and study it, we see that this is a subject concerning which we need understanding. According to the Bible and according to our text here, we need to realize what sin is, how it hurts us, and how it can be overcome. It's a topic we must talk about 
but it could, because it's a topic that is endemic to all of society. And the Bible, despite the stuff that's out there, speaks loud and clear on this subject, not to hurt us, but for our own good. You see, we'll never be what God made us to be if we don't address this subject. Nor will we experience the full flow of his grace and peace and abundance if we don't address sin head on. We'll perhaps stay in bondage to hang-ups and habits and attitudes that hurt us, that make our families marked by dysfunction. And our future usefulness for Christ will be hamstrung if we don't address this problem. Worse yet, there's some listening this morning. If they don't look soberly at this subject, they will experience eternal ruin and separation from God. What does God's word teach us about sin? Well, I believe here we see in our text three important truths concerning this subject. Follow along with us and may the spirit of Jesus help us and encourage us. Number one, we see what I would call a definition of sin. A definition of sin. John plainly calls sin what it is in verse four, saying everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness now you notice he uses this word everyone it's an inclusive word to show that everyone every person is susceptible to sin's infection all can fall victim all have fallen victim to moral and spiritual failure. None have lived up precisely to God's holy standards. And John makes this profession so that the haughty, self-righteous religious people in the church, the false teachers, the Gnostics would know that, yes, even you have sinned, though you deny it, 1 John 1.8. And then John defines sin here as lawlessness. The word literally means no law. In the Greek, it's the word for law with an alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, a prefix to the word. And in the Greek, that negates the word. So the word literally means no law. And here John uses this word to speak of the act of violating God's law. He's speaking of any attitude, any affection, any action that is contrary to the holy, impeccable character of our Lord. And the question we have is, what law is John speaking about when he speaks of lawlessness? This is important because in 21st century Christianity, there are many people who act like there's no law hanging over our lives, that the Old Testament is full of outdated, archaic, instruction and rules that are not applicable today and that we're just under this kind of loose nebulous free-for-all spirituality and there's no law over our life such a perspective is naive at best and unbiblical at worst see when we study scripture we learn that before god gave the mosaic law the law for the jews he still had what we could call his moral law hanging over all of creation. This is a law that exists because of God's character. 
And it is to be applied to every human who has ever lived. It is the very law by which God's creative order has its being. It is the very law by which we understand how life works. You see, before time began, our Lord existed in perfect holiness, Isaiah 6, 3, Revelation 4, 8. We know that he is incapable of wrongdoing. He is right and he is righteous. And his impeccable character sets the standard for what is right and wrong in the realm of all that he has made. When he created us, when he created our parents, Adam and Eve, he subjected all things to the standard of his character. Go read Genesis 1, 26 through 31 and Genesis 2, 16 through 17. This standard is known by theologians today as the moral law. It's important for us to understand this. Paul spoke of the moral law in Romans 2, 14 through 15 when he said this, when Gentiles, and that's us, non-Jews, so, so get this, there's a law hanging over all of humanity apart from the law for the Jews. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law, that is, they were never given the moral instruction of the law and the prophets. When Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, that is, they don't kill, they don't commit adultery, they don't steal. When Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. So get this, God made all things, and he made all things to operate according to the standard of who he is. And this moral law, according to Scripture, has been hardwired into the hearts of every man, woman, boy, and girl. Sure, some suppress it through sin, but it is there nonetheless. And as such, the moral law serves as wonderful evidence of God's existence. I think we could have a whole another sermon on that, another sermon for another time. But get this, somebody says, how do you know God exists? Well, He's perfectly displayed it through the fact that we all have a sense of right and wrong. Now, this aspect of God's law is famously stated in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 21 through 17. When we read the Bible, when we read the earliest accounts in Scripture, we learn that the earliest humans knew there were obvious standards of right and wrong even before the law of Moses, even before the law that led the Jews. See, before Moses existed, we read in Genesis that transgressions like idolatry, Genesis 2, 17, murder, Genesis 4, 8, adultery, Genesis 12, 18, fraud, Genesis 26, 12 through 27, greed, Genesis eleven twenty, 20, jealousy, Genesis 37, 11, drunkenness, Genesis 9. I could go on and on and on. I've got all types of references for you. But I think I make the point. According to Scripture, even before that law was given through Moses for the Jews, there was a law hanging over all of creation of what is right and wrong on the basis of God's holy character. 
And we, this morning, as God's people living here in a real world, need to understand this definition of sin. We've got to talk about this three-letter word. Sin is anything we say, think, or do that goes against God's moral law. Sin is transgression of the law. It is a violation of what is right and wrong because of God's holy standard. Oh, if the 21st century church wants to be salt and light in a, word of, in a world of so much hurt, we need to be aware of what sin is. We need to be aware that it's a violation of God's rules and requirements for humanity based on his standards of what is right and wrong. Though moral imperatives may seem to be a thing of the past in our me-centered culture. We've got to remember that there is a God who is holy and he is just. He has made each of us for a relationship with himself. And in order for that relationship to work, there are standards by which that relationship must operate. His character cannot be compromised. He cannot flirt with sin. He cannot make expectations that go against his righteousness his character makes demands concerning what is right and wrong and so to know him and to enjoy the life that he has for us we've got to come to grips with the reality of sin and pursue forgiveness in Jesus we've always got to keep this truth in mind, sin is transgression of God's law, his moral law. We've got to know this definition of sin. If we want to wage war on sin in our lives, we can easily, in the church culture in which we find ourselves, make excuses for bad attitudes, make excuses for addiction, Make excuses for selfishness. Make excuses for poor stewardship. Make excuses for idolatry in which we compromise the Lord's day. If we want to be spiritually and morally safe, we've got to stay vigilant and on the lookout concerning God's guidelines and make sure we're not stepping over the line. And get this, the life that is most purposeful and meaningful and enjoyable is only found within the boundaries and parameters of God's moral law. We see in here in Scripture a definition of sin. We see number two, what I would call a deliverance from sin. See this in verse number five where John says, you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins and there is no sin in him. Now, when he speaks of he here, he's speaking of Jesus. He says, you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins. He uses this seemingly insignificant word at the beginning of the verse, this word translated that, and it's a purpose clause. It points to the heavenly purposes that God had in sending Jesus to earth. And John flatly tells us, Jesus came to earth to take away sins. To take away sins. The language here for take away is 
a word in the first century, a, a simple word that referred to lifting something up, taking it, and carrying it away. It's used in Acts 27, 13 to convey, uh, to speak of the act of lifting an anchor of a boat. I can remember the first time I ever went to the lake. I was living in Cherokee County and my dad had a friend who had a boat. We went out to Lake Altoona. My dad and his friends were teaching us things and my dad, I remember, told my brother and I, he said, you boys know how Lake Altoona got its name? No, sir, we don't. Well, the first guy who ever fished here, his name was Al, and he caught a tuna. I believe that till I was like 17, I think. No, I'm just joking. So I thought, what a corny joke. Not too long ago, we were driving over a bridge over Lake Altoona. I said, hey, boys, you know how Lake Altoona got its name? But I remember the man who owned the boat, I remember distinctly when he dropped the anchor the first time I saw that and asking, what is that? Well, it's a weight. And, and we, we take it and we lower it and it goes all the way down to the, the bottom of the lake and it helps our boat stay in place while we fish. I was mesmerized by that, enthralled about thinking this thing sitting on the bottom of the lake and then I remember pulling it up and thought wow that's been on the bottom of the lake how neat this weight keeps this big boat in place and we see a word picture here in the New Testament John describes how the Lord came to earth and lived the perfect life we could never live and died as a sacrifice on Calvary's tree for our sins. And then was raised from the dead. Why? To take away the weight, the anchor, the chains, the heaviness of sin from our lives. John here portrays Jesus as it were lifting up our sins and carrying them away from our lives. See, don't you remember what you were before you met Christ? You were in bondage to bad attitudes. You had an inferiority, inferiority complex. I'm about to get an inferiority complex about not being able to say inferiority. You were in bondage to insecurity. You were given over to sin and addiction. You had this penalty over your life that you weren't good enough, that you deserved death and hell. And what did Jesus do? He came along and by his grace, he snatched you up and he took away the weight and the bondage of sin. Now see, this morning, we can talk about sin when we know what Jesus has done for sin. Many feel they can't talk about sin. Why? Because they don't preach the gospel. They aren't talking enough about Jesus. See, we can clearly talk about a definition of sin when we know there is deliverance from sin. John uses the same word here that John the Baptist used in John 1, 29, when he said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thanks be to God that Jesus takes away all of our guilt, all of our shame. Thanks be to God that Jesus through the cross of Calvary has removed the separation that exists between us and God because of sin. And John here clarifies in verse 5 why John could why Jesus could do this. 
Look at verse five. He says, you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins. And then he says, and there is no sin in him. Now get this great, glorious gospel truth. What gave Jesus the right to take away sins? Precisely, John tells us, because there was no sin in him. He was the only one who ever lived the perfect life. He lived the perfect life we could never live. Ultimately, it was the perfection, the holiness of Jesus that made his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf effective. If he would have ever sinned, he could not have been able to provide salvation for us. Because the Lord, we know through his word, always requires a perfect sacrifice for sin. He always mandated sacrifices must be unblemished. Leviticus 22, 22 through 25, and Deuteronomy 15, 21. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf was accepted because he was spotless, that spotless lamb. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, when he said this, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, John shared these words with his original readers because remember, they've got these folks in their church who are living sinful lifestyles, who were engaging in unloving behavior. You read about it back in... 1 John 2, 7 through 11, they were really ugly to folks within the church, hateful, spiteful. There were people committing um, gross acts of immorality, and all along they're saying, we have no sin. And John knew that the humble, genuine believers in the church needed some good Bible teaching on sin in order to staying strong and they needed to stay mindful of what Jesus had done lest they become discouraged in the midst of religious hypocrites. It's just as critical today for Christians to grasp the meaning of John's message. Without a strong awareness of what Jesus has done for sin, we'll be likely to become spiritually weak and apathetic. We know that sin brought suffering, shame, death, and separation from God into the human condition, but we were reminded here from John that Jesus' work at Calvary provides rescue. And as Christians, we don't have to live in bondage to guilt and shame and false guilt put on us by people. We don't have to live in fear and insecurity. We can live no matter what's going on and our circle of life, no matter what's happening to our bodies, no matter what's going on with our family, we can live with peace because we know the anchor of sin has been lifted. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have closeness with God and we have hope of a hereafter and a perfect paradise. See, we know this, life is good for those who know Jesus and have had him lift the weight of sin off of their lives. We can live with confidence, courage, happiness, hope, boldness, blessing, forgiveness, and love, all because of what Jesus has done. This morning, I was having my daily devotional time, 
And I was reading in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And I read about when David's men wanted to kill him because they had come under attack by an invading horde. And David, I guess, they thought didn't offer protection and maybe they needed a good leader. And what did David do? He got alone by himself and he encouraged himself in the Lord. Christian Sander Bible says he strengthened himself in the Lord. I was encouraged by that truth this morning, and I was reminded as I prepared to preach this sermon, as I looked over my notes this morning, one more time before I preach, I was reminded, oh, this is what we've got to do. We've got to do like David of old. When life throws us a curveball, we've got to remember gospel truth and know how to strengthen our souls in the Lord. We have deliverance from sin. Number three this morning, I want us to see that we have what I would call a defense against sin a defense against sin when we moved here from Oklahoma the the last our last night or our next last night in Oklahoma we spent it in Oklahoma City and it seemed kind of fitting because the Atlanta Hawks were playing the Oklahoma City Thunder and so we got to see two of our favorite NBA teams in person uh, but the, the boys went to cheer for the Hawks. And uh, there was an older lady behind us who was a, obviously a rabid Oklahoma City Thunder fan. And every time the Hawks would get the ball, our boys would chant, offense, offense. That little old lady would lean her head forward right between the boys and say, defense, defense. You know in life that a defense is important. And John here tells us how we can have a defense in our personal lives against sin. This is such important truth. I remember I first became a believer. I knew there were some things I needed to stop doing. Some friends I needed to keep my distance from. Some old habits that needed to die. And I remember being overwhelmed with this idea of I don't know how to change. I remember going to church and sitting like a thirsty dog ready to lap water just hoping that the preacher would say something that would help me learn how to overcome indwelling sin. Well, John here gives us some great truth. In verse 6, he says, Everyone who remains in him does not sin. And everyone who sins has not seen him or know him. Now, important explanation on the end of verse 6 when he says everyone who sins, he uses important verbiage in the Greek that speaks of an ongoing habit of life activity. So John's not saying if you commit a sin, you lose your salvation. He's specifically speaking about the sick and twisted sinners in the church who didn't know Christ, yet through their unloving behavior and their immorality, their continual unloving behavior and their continual immorality revealed they didn't really know Jesus. We know that we all stumble in many ways, James 3, 2. So John is not advocating sinless perfectionism. If you sin, you're not really saved. He instead is speaking against people who ironically touted the doctrine of sinless perfectionism Yet excuse their sin, and he says, hey, if you have got a habit of life pattern of sinning, you ought to check yourself. 
But, but look at the first part of verse 6. He, he gives this important instruction on how we can have a defense against sin. He says, everyone who remains in him does not sin. Now notice John has spoken of this subject of remaining in Jesus over and over again. He talked about it in 1 John 2.10, 2.24, 2.27, 2.28, and he'll speak of it in 4.16 as well. John likely did this for good reason because in his gospel account, he over and over again talks about how Jesus talked about this topic of remaining in him. John 6, 56, 8, 31. John 15, 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, and 10. Jesus talked about how we need to remain in him a lot. What does it mean to remain in Jesus? Well, the, the word here is an ancient wor- word that referred to a lodging or dwelling place. Go read Luke eight twenty seven and John eight thirty five. You'll see the word used in that way. The, l- the word literally meant to stay continue or abide. Yesterday I made reservations for a hotel room in a few weeks. We're going to go down to the beach. And I told Laura after I hung up the phone, I made reservations. We're going to stay at such and such place. John uses a word that would have had that same meaning. We could say here, he's encouraging us to stay in Jesus. Now, what does that mean? seems quite subjective. How do you stay in Jesus? I mean, I heard this teaching early on in my Christian experience, but didn't really grasp it. What does it mean to abide in Jesus or remain in him? Well, get this. The word has this idea of relationship. You're spending time with the Lord. You're staying connected to him. One has said it means that we remain united with him, one with him in heart, mind, and will. Now, we should all be familiar with this concept from our own lives. Don't all relationships involve an idea of staying and abiding? To give an example, I would think about my role as a a husband and as a father to really be the man God wants me to be within those circles of influence. I've got to stay with my family, spend quality time with Laura, Julianne, Will, and Levi. I have got to abide with them, stay, remain with them. I've got to engage in regular conversation, talk to them, connect with them. I've got to be a good listener. I've got to schedule my life pre priorities, my actual calendar around my wife and children. I've got to make sound decisions that honor the reality of those relationships. And I've got to give of my resources and my time to bless them and to build up our family. We know this good, we could say this, good family relationships are all about staying and abiding with one another. And shouldn't our walk with Christ be similar? Remaining in Jesus involves, as Jesus would say, and as John says, a focus on relationship with him. Christianity isn't just something we say we are or we do one day of the week. Christianity isn't just about a bumper sticker or a t-shirt or a magnet on our car or a pretty painting in our house with certain words that are religious. Nothing against all those things. Don't hear what I'm not saying, but get the essence of being a Christian here. 
Jesus says it involves John 15, 4, remaining in him. John here says we fight sin by remaining in Jesus. What does this mean? It's the idea of relationship. Just as I would regularly talk to and listen to my family, if I want to remain in Jesus, I should regularly talk to him and listen to him through his word. I should have times of both private worship and corporate worship with his people. I, Patrick, if I want to abide in Jesus, apart from being a pastor, I should have a schedule and life priorities that make room for the Lord and that take him and his word and his will into account. If I, apart from being a pastor, if you as a Christian want to remain in Jesus, you should joyfully, we should joyfully give of ourselves to the Lord. We should make choices and decision in life that are made from a heart that want to know and please the Lord. Remaining is relationship. According to John, the one who remains in Jesus does not sin. Language here again is present tense, and it means the one who remains in Jesus does not keep sinning, doesn't have the habit of life of sinning. The apostle doesn't mean to say that a Christian never sins or stumbles. Rather, he means to say that the Christian who stays in close relationship with Jesus will not have the habit of sin. Furthermore, he shows us that staying in a close relationship with Jesus is the means and method of overcoming the plague of indwelling sin in our lives. And Jesus taught this to be true in John 15, 4, when he said, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me know this friend how do you overcome sin oh I wish somebody would told me this early in my Christian experience flatly and plainly how do you overcome sin remain in a close relationship with Jesus perspective priorities perceptions all grounded on him minute by minute hour by hour day by day and he will produce his life in you and sin gradually, progressively, incrementally will lose its grip on your soul. A close connection with Jesus is what makes us capable of overcoming and dwelling sin. Know this by themselves, your religious profession, your church involvement cannot stifle your struggles. Willpower will fail. Man-centered behavior modification and mere human-oriented self-improvement techniques cannot produce the life of Christ. Only a soul-to-soul connection to God through Jesus will give victory over indwelling sin. And this is the whole point of Paul's teaching when he taught on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. So know this, that addiction, that secret sin, that lack of joy in your life, those toxic emotions of bitterness, jealousy, pride, fear, worry, anger, people-pleasing, can all be overcome. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.